Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have the good friend of the podcast, Chris Rowe of Rowe Hunting Resources on the line. Chris, how are you doing? Doing all right, my friend. How are you? Good. Where have we found you today? Oh, this is on the far east side of Kansas. I'm in Lawrence. I'm getting ready to do, I've got an elk seminar that I'm going to be doing with the Elk Foundation here tonight at Overton's. Uh, John Overton, Overton our Archery Center here in Lawrence, Kansas, and then uh, do a little bit more work, and then I'll be heading home. But, yeah, far east side of Kansas this this time. Nice. Um, well, I'm sure those guys will get a lot of value out of that seminar. Um, we got a lot to talk about. The last I think we talked was kind of maybe after the youth season and then maybe rolling into the general season of turkey there in Kansas. I was headed uh, Gould's turkey hunting. Um, we talked about the white face strutter. We talked about some right. of that that stuff. Um, we might as well start at the top. And how was your uh, turkey season this year in Kansas? Uh, now that it's all over with, it it ended up really really good. I was kind of worried. I think uh, when we talked originally. If I remember right, you know, it was still dry. We were just brutally dry, and out here, winter wheat is king. So if you've got good winter wheat, you've got the birds. If you don't, well, then you got to kind of wait for things to really kind of start to green up, and then it's kind of hit or miss on where those birds are going to go. Well, we, luckily, we got hit with a couple of rainstorms. It didn't drop a lot of rain, but it, it dumped enough that it really kicked our winter wheat in gear and, man, we had birds pile in, so, yeah, I, we were able to let, I, I let all of our hunters upgrade to two birds if they wanted to, and everybody, we, we sat at right about a 99% success rate. They, the, only guy, <laughs> the only guy that did not get his bird, uh, we focused on getting his son his bird uh, first and then went out and hunted it and we purposely went after two of the biggest, oldest birds that we knew of, and it was late season, so it's tough to begin with. And we found two these got I mean these two giants. The whole the late season out here can get pretty tough, and 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 the birds will end up on their summer mode. Well, it was such a cold spring where everything was delayed. And so we had this kind of mishmash of some birds were still locked down hard with hens. Other birds were just shut. They were just done. They were just off on their own, and they didn't care. Well, we kept talking about, you know, and you know this from Guy D, you know, you start getting the later season, you really want to try to find those birds that are cruising in between. You know, maybe they've lost their hens. Their hens are done, but they just start running the landscape looking for those last available hens. Well, we kept trying to find some birds like that and just, Everything was locked down. Everything just didn't want to work. So we find these two giants. We split up. He goes in, gets set up. I'm several hundred yards back away. My goal was just to call to keep them talking. Dude, they ha they we should have just stayed right out. Those birds were hot, and they came like a freight train. I mean, just come smoking at me. Well, by luck of all stupid luck, the route they decided to take was not a. It, it put the, he was crouched behind, hiding behind the cedar tree, and these two birds walked right to the other side of the cedar tree that he was on. And I mean, they they snuck around. They started coming around the side of the cedar tree. Well, they're like 
three, five feet away. And so when they when they get there, all of a sudden they see something not right. They they start to putt. They start to run. He jumps up, tries to swing and shoot. Well, you're ten foot away with an extra full turkey choke. I mean, you better be a surgeon with that thing. And so. First shot, missed, boom, now the birds are just doing mock 30, you know, flying. He took a second shot, missed, and by this time they were gone, and he just sat there, just like, what just happened? <laughs> so that's the only guy that didn't throw his tag. But my, and I got it all on video. He's a good friend of mine, Steve Fernandez. Love the guy to down. He's he, and he's a guide himself uh, down in New Mexico, so he knows what he's doing. The guy's legit, but it just was one of those comical. Uh, it was a great trip, great great fun, but we just ran out of time. He just had a two day deal that he could do, and so that's the only one that didn't fill. But it it ended up being a really really good season. I did shut things down early again. We only hunted until that first week of May. Uh, just because I just want to, I always try to leave some mature birds for next year. So I don't want to just whack the bejeebas out of all the, ma- the mature birds we have. So we, I shut everything down beginning of May, and uh, yeah, we we had birds gobbling and strutting out in fields all the way here up through last week, actually. So, wow, Chris, one question for you. Um, talking about you know, kind of, well, I have several questions. One is the you know, strategy of, you know, getting back a couple hundred yards. Um, I assume it's a similar strategy to what you hear sometimes uh, guys trying to do with elk, which I'm not a huge believer in, but was your strategy somewhat of a kind of I'll keep them going, almost you're going to kind of bushwhack them type of um, method or what, like talk a little bit about Absolutely. Um, you know, that strategy, and is that strategy something you use very often, or is that more like, all right, these are two big birds, we're going to have to pull out all the tricks to, to make this happen? Right there. You you nailed it. See, what was going on, again, it, for people that have not hunted out in my country or in some of that uh, open Rio Grande country, we have lots of open agriculture and these skinny little corridors of cover and where the trees are. And so... When we start getting late season, especially when you're dealing with older, more mature birds, you know, you, you and I both hear it all the time. You know, people say, oh, you know, the, the hardest bird to kill is an eastern, or oh, the hardest bird to kill is a Mississippi bird. or oh, the, it, it, Birds get smart. If, if they are hunted, whether it's by humans, by predators, or whatever, they, the older the bird gets, the smarter they're going to get. They, and they're going to, they know how to survive, number one. Number two, again, by biologically, behaviorally, the hen is supposed to go to the gobbler. That's why he strokes. That's why he gobbles. So in our area, especially when you start getting late season and when those birds are locked down with those hens, they will be out in the wide open ag fields, hundreds of, sometimes hundreds of yards away from any sort of cover whatsoever. And while, you know, anybody listening that follows turkey hunting, you know, you see those little scoot-and-shoot type deals or the little turkey fans that you can put on your shotgun and you can crawl out there with them and the birds come attacking, you know, the, the turkey fan. Well, yes, that can happen. But usually from a behavior cycle, that's early in the season. Late season, they don't. They've, been, they've fought everybody they want to fight. They don't want to fight anymore. Uh, they're just on their own, and if they've got one or two hens left, they'll just 
stick with them things like glue, and they'll just sit there and listen to, or look at you. Now, they might gobble at you from a distance, but they're not going to budge. Well, so in that case, what you described is exactly that, and, I, and you're right. There's a lot of people that will do that for elk, especially during rifle season. You know, sometimes the bulls will bugle at you from a distance, but then once you get in close, they just go silent. Well, if you've got a buddy, one person hang back, keep them bugling, the other person try to sneak in. Well, that's what we were going to do. Again, like I said, uh, Steve, is, he's, a, he's a professional guide. Uh, he takes clients, uh, he, he works for a, a high-dollar outfit, a really high-quality outfit, and his hunters are, I mean, he averages usually pretty darn close to 100% success rate on all, taking all of his hunters. The guy's good. He knows what he's doing, turkeys and elk. We're just hunting his friends and, and, and just tag-teaming. Well, so Steve knew what he, you know, if, if Steve got in close, he knew what he was needed to do. What I said is, I said, I tell you what, this bird, they're out in the middle of the field. I'm just going to be back here and crank on a, a box call because they were gobbling. I mean, boom, boom, they would gobble at it. But all the other birds that we had encountered up until that point, they'd gobble, but they would stay in the open, and they'd just kind of skirt from, from you know, hilltop to hilltop, or they'd stay out in these open little areas. Well, where these birds were and the direction that they were traveling and where I could set up and keep them gobbling, it was a made-and-ready situation where Steve could move forward and get himself set up way ahead of the birds on this little finger of cover as those birds worked their way to get to the hilltop where they should be able to see me and should be able to, to you know, gobble and, and try to kind of periscope their necks up and just kind of see what's going on, he would have been right smack dab in range. And if he needed to make a few calls here or there, he could have easily done it. But my job was just to try to keep them gobbling so that he could get in there and get close. Because the other thing, too, was difficult to figure out, you know, just on their own. They were, again, they were locked down with what were just with one hand. And so, yeah, that is not a tactic I use all the time. It's, it's very rare that I do that. And most of the time it's... It, most of the time we can set up and work the birds just like, you know, what I'd say traditional. You know, you hear them gobble, you move in close, you get set up, and boom, boom, and call them in. Most of the time that's what we're doing. This was one of those rare occurrences where doing that type of, you know, splitting up, keeping the birds talking was, in our mind, the most legitimate play to kill those suckers. Well, he got halfway to where he was wanting to be, and, I mean, these birds started coming, and they just flat, they were the textbook birds, that, I mean, that we all just killed or died to have. I mean, every time I hit that box call or the mouth call, they would gobble, and they just marched. They did not pause. They just marched, and they were on their way. If Steve had stayed there right there with me, I'll bet you we could have called them about a third of a mile off of a hill, down through a valley, up the other side to me, and we could have killed them. We would have hit, we, he would have killed both those birds. But they just caught him in a bad spot. <laughs> he, cried, he did everything he could do to just, not, just to make like a, a lump in the ground, and they just walked right up on top of him, and he had no shot opportunity until literally they were, I mean, 
he's looking at the scales on their legs. You know, I mean, they were right there. And it was it was too late. <laughs> and you know, hindsight twenty twenty, we talked about it after <laughs> after we got done laughing. We talked about it. I said, you know, quite honestly, the best thing probably would have done is just stand up and let them run off a little bit and then kind of pause and look back. And then he kind of probably could have shot when they were 25, 30 yards out there and probably would have dumped him because the pattern would have been better. But, you know, you get excited. He thought he could yeah. get her done. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was fun. Question, you, you had talked about wanting to leave mature birds on your property. And yeah. for all the listeners out there that have properties that they hunt, um, one would be why number two would be um I, I had some hunters asking me this question there was a little bit of a debate but um can jakes breed the hens and can they get the job done well to that question yeah absolutely no question yes now they may be a little clumsy at it you know teenagers are teenagers <laughs> but yeah they they absolutely can and it's been documented numbers of times um so, yes, Jace can get the job done, number one. Uh, but, and I know that there's probably some people listening, and because <clears throat> this, this is one of those ones where you will have some controversy, especially other outfitters. You know, I've got one of our neighbors is an outfitter that will just, he'll whack and stack every bird that comes in that a hunter wants to shoot. I mean, they don't care. If it's got a, if it's a, if it's got a visible beard and the hunter wants to shoot it, they'll shoot it. So, you know, there's a discussion amongst wildlife professionals when we're talking about small game populations, and there's a very generally accepted principle that you can't stockpile small game, all right? Um, so it means, you know, if you want to keep, you know, you, you have a property for rabbits, and you have a bunch of rabbits, and so you go out and shoot a bunch of rabbits, but you say, oh, I want to leave some rabbits, and so you try to leave some rabbits. Well, the way small game populations are, it's very difficult to just like you said, stockpile, like hold them over for Their population is going to do what their population is going to do. Now, when it comes to turkeys, turkeys kind of get into that middle ground to where some people think that, yes, you can, and some people say, nah, it doesn't matter. Shoot all the mature birds that you, that you can uh, because it's unlikely that a, you know, a bird's going to you know, survive, and so if you're shooting a two-year-old, who cares, shoot a two-year-old. And again, especially outfitters or, or people that are running hunts, you know, they're like, it doesn't matter. You know, you can, and I did, I did, and, and a couple of my hunters this year killed two-and-a-half-year-old or two-year-old birds that were, you know, had nine-and-a-half, almost ten-inch beards. So they're big old honking beards. Their spurs aren't that long, but they're big-bodied birds, and they've got a big beard, and the hunter's happy, and everybody's, yay, you know, pats each other on the back. Well, I'm, a, in, the, I'm in the, the camp of people that says, no, once a bird reaches, a turkey reaches maturity, there's very few things that are going to kill him. Yes, a bobcat can catch a mature bird. Yes. A coyote, yes, they can catch a mature bird. Yes. Um, maybe you'll have a big great horned owl that wants to come in and, you know, pick off a mature bird off a limb or something like that. Sure, all those things can happen, but depending on your predator population and the pressure and all sorts of other factors, uh, we've got in our area, way too many times where you can each season get on a three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old bird. I mean, you're shooting inch and a quarter, inch and a half, inch. A buddy of mine here, uh, I showed pictures of inch and three-quarter, one and three-quarter inch spurs. I mean, these things are bigger around than my pinky finger. They're huge, but big, older, older, more mature birds. Well, obviously, 
they have survived. So from my standpoint, philosophically, my own personal, this is just my personal value set, for the properties that I manage and the hunters that I take, I really do like that mystery. I, I like having that blend of we know we're going to run into jakes out there, hopefully. We know we, we can run into two-year-old birds. And quite honestly, as guides, uh, as hunters, there's sometimes, boy, boy, we love those two-year-old birds because they're the ones that are running around gobbling their heads off, and, and they come running in, have a big nine-and-a-half, ten-inch beard, and bang, you know, hunts over, and, and it was an eager, quick hunt. There's nothing wrong with a two-year-old, and, and I'm the same, you know, I tell everybody I'm the same way. If it's got a full fan, if that thing comes in and it, it struts and it's got a full fan, that bird's in trouble. And unless, of course, I'm actively going out and trying to find a big set of spurs. If I'm just out there having a fun turkey hunt, I don't care if it's a two-year-old. If it's got a full fan and a big old beard and he plays the game and, he, and, and we're having fun, he's going to get smacked. However, there is something really cool about going and walking up to, you know, shooting a bird and walking up to it and going, oh, my, and having inch-and-a-half big old honking limb-hanging, you know, spurs on that thing. Or, you know, in a couple places on, you know, on my ground, I know for a fact, like, like these two birds that Steve and I got set up. These birds have been there for the past three years that I've been uh, working with this property. Uh, there, there's no question. They're the, they 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 use the same fields. They use the same fields the same manner. These two are always together. I mean, these birds, it's the same birds. There's no question. They're old. They're At this point, they've got to be, I don't know, four, maybe five years old. There's just something really cool about having the opportunity to either just flat out luckily stumble into a mature bird and kill one or be able to go, those birds are different. I want to target them. Let's see if we can't get this done. It just adds a dynamic to the hunt and to the landscape that I think um, you just don't get necessarily if, if all you're doing is, is chasing jakes and two-year-olds. Now, granted, some of the birds are going to survive, so you might have a three-year-old or whatever in there, but if you're just whacking and stacking and killing every bird on the landscape, you know, all it takes, and, that, and that's the other thing, too, for us, that's the other thing. In some of these drier climates where we've had a couple bad hatches back-to-back, -back, we've had bad storms right about the time the poults hatched that have just wiped out our spring poult survival, and then you've got a drought situation, you know, you, you, you count on jakes turning into two-year-olds, and then you can shoot all the two-year-olds because you've got jakes coming up the next year. Well, you go to a situation where you have two bad hatches or two failed hatches year to year, now what? You, you, you don't have any birds. So I always try this, and I, I can't even put any quantitative science behind it, but just me, I try to leave about 30% of our mature birds on the landscape. I want to at least leave a third of the birds that are out there. Do you think it makes sense? Um, you know, I, I know what you're talking about, you know, quote-unquote trophy birds, older birds, you know, four-year-old, five-year-old birds, what have you. Um, do you believe that, you know, if you had your choice to shoot a two-year-old or a five-year-old on the last day, 
um, are those five-year-old birds, is there a chance that they're not as productive with the hens and they're actually bullying the other birds? Or do you not think that that is, you know, I, I hear that a lot. So I'm just curious if you think, you know, some of those older, more mature birds, you know, are they still reproducing and, and are they actually a detriment to your flock or do you feel like no, um, you know, as long as you don't have too many older birds, you should be good? Well, actually, I don't, I don't, and by all means, anybody who's listening to this, especially the turkey guys there, um, email both of us if you've got some data, science, scientific data, because I don't know if there's any data that shows that, and I'm talking about peer-reviewed, you know, good quality, not anecdotal, not somebody's opinion, but as far as scientific data, I don't know if I've ever heard uh, that older birds are not reproductively viable, number one. I think they are. I don't, I don't see any reason why those mature birds would not be continually reproductively viable. And while I think, yes, you probably could get in a situation where some of those older birds are kind of the bully birds, but I will be honest, in my experience, that has not been the case. In my experience, it's the younger birds that are traveling together in groups that end up being the bully birds that end up um, kind of running the show. Now, that's not to say that the, the mature birds not still there. Uh, for instance, there's a particular, uh, the, my, the, the, one of the birds that I killed this spring, a group of five gobblers were running together, and they were locked down with, I mean, literally three hens. And you sit there and go, five gobblers with three hens. Okay, well, when you watch the behavior, it ended up being three two-year-olds that were pounding around, and they were just running the bejeebas out of anybody else that stepped into that field. And then there were two mature birds, and the mature birds were just always off. One mature bird was always with the hens, and then another mature bird was always just kind of, you know, kind of waiting in the wings. But the three two-year-olds were just on the periphery of the mature bird that had the hens, and they and any time another gobbler stepped in the field, they would go over and just absolutely beat the ever-loving bejeebas out of them. So I think in that situation, you know, those probably the big mature bird that had the hens, he, he could hold his own and, and probably already asserted his dominance. The three other ones had probably already beat up the other one. You know, the other mature bird was probably an older bird that just couldn't fight as much as anymore. And so those two-year-olds were just waiting for their opportunity, but by, they weren't going to let anybody else in that situation. I don't, you, and even thinking back on some of the more mature birds that we've killed, if it's been an older bird, it has either been off by itself or on the periphery of groups with younger, more, you know, they still might have been a three-year-old bird, but they were just a younger age class bird. Um, they were either off on their own or they just had their own group of hens. It would be one mature bird and he'd have three, four, five hens. And then maybe on the other side of the creek bottom, here's another bird all by himself, but he's got three, four, five hens of his own. They just run their own girls. Now, like we, like Steve and I ran into, man, again, my, my dream scenario is the day that that big mature bird 
suddenly loses his last hen, and he decides that it's time for me to go cruising and wants to run over any anybody that, that is in his way to get to that last hen he hears, you know, me calling. So I, I think they're always reproductively viable, um, and I'm sure that there might be some bully older bullet birds, but, man, every situation I can personally think of, most of the time it's a younger age class that are traveling together that ends up being the bullies. Okay, that's um, good stuff. Um, any anything this turkey season that jumps out at you that you learned, um, you know, that you know, new stuff, or did you see any behavior or anything that perplexed you, or um, you know, just talk a little bit of you know, if there was something, one thing, one tactic you used, or one thing you witnessed or noticed that was different. Well, the, for us this year, the big thing that I think a lot of people ended up dealing with was the fact that we had such a cold April. Um, a lot of people commented on it. Even, you know, mid to late April, some of those mornings we'd get up and it was 19 degrees. It just was cold. And then throughout the day, it wouldn't get out of the 40s and 50s. And so even when we should have been rolling into warmer uh, wetter, uh, you know, the behavior cycle should have been a little bit more um, further along. It seemed like in some places the birds were just rocking and doing what they always do. In other places they were, you know, we started out maybe in March. Things looked like they were going to be early, you know, on a behavior cycle. And then all of a sudden that cold weather hit and it just kind of slowed everything down to where at the end of April and the beginning of May, they were still acting, some birds were still acting like they would have been in mid-April rather than in, you know, say two years ago, I remember killing my last birds uh, that first week of May. They, were, they had been done for two weeks. The only way that you were going to kill anything is just set up on an edge of a field and just wait for them to walk by and sluice them. I mean, they were completely done. So seeing how this year's cold weather, even though it was dry, uh, and, and, again, we had that drought, so, I mean, there was real differences in what spring green up was and what vegetation was popping and where the birds were moving. But um, that cold, those cold temperatures really threw a monkey wrench into a lot of people's plans, and it was just interesting to see how things progressed across the season. I'm blessed to be able to um, utilize a number of properties kind of scattered out across a four-county area where you could definitely see a difference. You know, these birds were early, these birds were running late, these birds were on schedule. You know, some of these birds were running around just going crazy, chasing hens all over the place. These birds over here were just locked down, and, I mean, you couldn't have pried them off with a crowbar. So it was just a real interesting dynamic this year. And then as soon as we rolled into May, I mean, it was like someone flipped the switch, and now it's summer, and we got 90-degree temperatures, and goodness gracious. So it was kind of a squirrely year for weather, but it really was interesting to see how the birds reacted to it. Going into the summer, you've gotten a few showers and what have you. Um, you left some birds out there on the landscape, like you said. Um, can you make any predictions for next spring based on what you saw this spring, or is it just oh. you know, something that you can't talk about until fall and then kind of speculate from there? Well... I think I, I, well, 
I never start booking my own personal hunts until after the first of the year because at that point our crop rotation is pretty much settled and I know for a fact what our uh, winter wheat situation looks like. I know for a fact where, where the birds are and I have, I have a better handle of what, what the population looks like. But I can tell you I am very excited for next year because I was extremely pleasantly surprised at the number of jakes that we, in fact, had this year running around. Um, and it was very interesting to see, and I've got some video footage, and I'm going to try to piece some of these together for uh, the website. It was very clear to see some of the jakes, very large body size, you know, four-inch beard sticking out of their chest almost, you know, I mean, a very prominent, small, but prominent beard, uh, very large body Jake, you know, they'd be out there strutting, they have a decent fan, and rather than the, you know, the, you know, the, the oh, the, the stereotypical center four feathers in the fan sticking up, you know, your typical Jake fan, it would be uh, the center eight feathers or center ten feathers. So, they actually were an older cohort that were, you know, that successfully hatched and, and were raised from last spring. But then right on their heels, following right behind them, here's another group of jakes, and I mean, their beards are barely visible out of their chest. They're tiny little birds that look almost like a hen, and when they strutted, it might have been two feathers. So these things are weeks to months behind their buddies, which makes sense since last year and the year before, we've had just these bad weather cycles and predators, you know, raccoons and skunks and possums and whatnot that, that raid a nest and cause a hen to have to re-nest. So, but the number of jakes that we had running around every single property that, uh, that we hunted, that I, that I managed, had groups of jakes running around, which is awesome because those are our two-year-olds for next year. And given the fact that so far we have had a mild spring, yes, it's been dry, yes, we've had a couple uh, thunderstorms, but in our area, those thunderstorms that just simply dumped rain and wind and no hail, uh, no snow, no, no just real severe weather, we should have nest success, barring any issues with coons and skunks and everything else, if the, if the hen brings off that clutch, they should be pretty darn good, sizable, healthy birds this year. So I know we've got a good number of mature birds because I've seen them out there just when I was working on my food plot stuff and getting some other stuff prepped. There, there we've got a number of, of good mature birds out there. I know we've got a number of two-year-olds that we've left out there. And now next year we have a pile of jakes that are going to all be our two-year-olds. Next year, if our crop rotation is good and we don't, if we can break out of this kind of drought cycle to where our crop rotation goes back to, quote-unquote, what it should be, oh, man, is next year going to be fun. Yeah. Always fun to have something to look forward to. Um, I got a chance on my Goulds hunt, so we were down there for almost 30 days. Um, of course, you were there with us last spring. Um, got a chance, uh, Billy Yargis, a three-time NWTF uh, turkey calling 
uh, Grand National Turkey Calling Champion, actually came down and, and harvested two birds. Um, and it was a real delight for me to get to, for about five, four or five days, um, I just went around with them and got to listen to him, how he worked birds, how he called birds. And uh, I was telling you yesterday when we were trying to set up a time for this podcast, one thing that jumped out at me was uh, Billy is such a good caller as far as authentic, you know, sounds, good cadence, you know, great timing and, and knows when to call, when not to call, what have you. Um, one thing that uh, kind of struck me is that uh, when we would get, have birds roosted from the night before and we would get in there real early, you know, pitch black, let everything settle, um, Billy would actually, and, and, and I kind of want your opinion on this, you know, you, you hear the tree calling and you hear all the different strategies that we've heard historically um, over the years and what have you of, you know, give them a couple calls and then just shut up. Billy seemed to do the exact opposite. He seemed to be having conversations with individual hens in the tree as well as gobblers. Um, and Chris, he could, with a high-end kind of a front-end, front high-end or a high front-end yelp, you know, kind of a yelp, 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 real sweet, he'd be talking to one hen, and then he'd switch the very next, series of calls, he would switch to an old mature hen, and bow, 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 and it was crazy. I mean, I videoed it. I put it up on my YouTube, um, but once those hens would start up in the tree, he would, he just had a constant conversation back and forth. I'm talking totally opposite of what we've all read, so yeah. I'm curious, and, and with great success, um, you know, he, he, he would call birds directly out of the tree, directly to him, gobblers and hens. Um, and I asked him about it, and he's like, yeah, he's like, you know, if, if you're having a conversation with someone and then you just shut up and you don't answer back and they keep calling, you know, your buddy keeps asking or they keep shouting out and you're not answering, they think you left or they think you're, you know, pissed off or something and they end up probably just saying to heck with it. I'm curious your thoughts on, you know, me witnessing Billy calling a ton to those birds in the tree, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think Billy and I would get along marvelously because, no, I, <laughs> I agree. I mean, cause the other thing, too, is, you know, his analogy, yeah, I, I, I'm fine with it, but, you know, as a wildlife guy, the other flip side is, is you know, you think about it behaviorally, okay, you, you're, you're a turkey in the tree, you hear another turkey that sounds like she's on the ground or, or over there somewhere, maybe she's close to the ground or whatever, But and here we are talking back and forth, and all of a sudden the one that's over there that's kind of on the ground all of a sudden just goes dead quiet. Well, the only reason why a turkey goes dead quiet is what, a bobcat come through? Did a, is a coyote over there? It, did some other predator come through? Did they, you know, it, it, did they, is something wrong? What, what caused that? Because otherwise they're going to be down there milling around. Even if they're not flat, you know, yep, 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 and they're going to be down there scratch, 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 and purr, and brr, brr, you know. There's going to be activity there that those birds on the limb are going to be able to continue to hear. It's, it is literally very similar to what I tell people, you know, wh you know, whether it's elk calling or whether it's turkey calling, once those animals uh, continue to, you know, they 
respond, they're moving your way, and you know, all of a sudden you've gotten within that, that particular range where you say, you know what, I need to set up. There's some people who just at that point they're like, oh, he's close, I'm going to get set up, I'm going to stop calling, and I'm going to let him come find me. Well, if you've had that conversation for that entire time, and then all of a sudden you go, no pun intended, cold turkey, you just run, you're done, you're all of a sudden dead silent, a lot of times you're going to put that other animal on edge. You're going to be like, what the heck, where the heck did they go? Especially if they start coming in a little bit closer, looking and gobble at you or bugle at you or whatever, they're going, okay, I was just talking to someone over here, where, where are you? And you don't move, you don't say anything. In their mind, the animal, whatever animal was just there that they were talking to, has left. Either has left or is standing like a stone statue because there's, a, there's probably a predator somewhere around. And that's typically when the turkeys, you see them fold those wings up over their backs, they start flip, 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 fold those wings up, turn around and walk away, or that's when you get an elk that just all, all of a sudden they start swinging around downwind. They start using their nose. I always, I agree, absolutely. If you start that conversation, continue the conversation. Now, I, I'm, and I'm sure Billy's the same way. If, if, the converse, if the birds on the tree are just, they want to talk, then, then I'm going to talk. But if, if they are just, I mean, really quiet and they're really not, crank, you know, not fired up, I'm gonna, while they're on the tree, I'm probably going to just kind of keep that same temperature, if you will, that kind of same momentum. But once they hit the ground, or, or more importantly, if, it, if I think they have a, a, a potential to fly out in a different direction, I know I'm, I'm going to start picking it up a minute because I'm trying, and I'm sure Billy's the same way, I'm trying to put in their mind that, hey, yes, I'm a turkey over here, but I'm talking with you. I, I, I'm engaging you. I feel if I'm engaging you and I'm on the ground, then obviously if I'm on the ground, I feel safe. And if I'm going to be yapping my gums like I am, I obviously feel confident and safe and there's no problem. And if I step that up, you know, it sounds like Billy was, you know, basically sounded like two different hens, but it almost sounded like what, you know, I, what you and I had talked about before a long time ago about that low and slow, that go, 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 you know, where you got those older, mature hens just saying, hey, I'm over here, come here, this is where everybody needs to be, and get that flock to fly out. I get criticized all the time. Heck, you can watch uh, on one of my YouTube videos with, with uh, actually, it's funny, with Steve, with the, with the guy we were just talking about. Steve's Turkey Hunt is on YouTube, um, and you, you'll see a couple comments in there where people are like, oh, my gosh, you're calling way too much, and, and you're lucky you even killed that bird. And but Why? Because I was just hammering. Even the birds that were on the roost, I was calling to them. And when they flew down, I was hammering them. You got 30 birds on a roost and a handful of gobblers, and they're, they fly down 100 yards away from you. You either better convince that flock <laughs> that they need to be over there and battle them or at least convince one or two of those gobblers to break away. Otherwise, you're just going to go off and do their own thing. So, no, I, I agree with Billy, I agree with that tactic. I, I, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Do you think that? Do you think that that's that tactic of a couple of soft tree calls and then shut up is because 
it kind of stemmed from maybe guys that don't sound as realistic, they don't sound as good, and they, over time they realized they called too much and those birds figured them out. I mean, I can see how if you don't sound realistic, if you don't have the proper cadence and timing, like how you could make the conclusion that, hey, I need to not call as much, and hey, one time I called two times and they all flew down right to me, so therefore that's the way to do it. I mean, I, yes. I, get, I, I think that's what happened. I, I think, uh, it, and, you know, and, it's just over time people that maybe weren't the greatest callers and, and, you know, you don't have to be a great caller to kill turkeys. Um, but obviously if your cadence and timing is off, you can screw a lot of things up by overcalling. And I agree with you. And I think, and this is not to be um, just, maliciously cutting and, and, and you know, um, overly critique of, of people's abilities. But, you know, I help people all the time, and that is one of the things that consistently, and it sounds so stinking basic, and it is, but it's one of the things that's hard for people to get wrapped their head around is the, the cadence of, especially when we're talking Yelps, it, the cadence matters. It matters. And so you need to spend time listening to hens, and, and when you call, whether it's a box call or a pot call or a mouth call, you need to have the correct cadence. And if you're going to do a Yelp, you, you, like you said, you don't have to be the best caller in the world. I talk about you know, whether you're an, effic- you're an effective caller, an efficient caller, or you know, a you know, professional caller, whatever you want to call it. You don't have to be a phenomenal caller. But the people that are consistently successful are those people that understand the fundamentals of, okay, the cadence needs to be right. And when I do a Yelp, there does need to be that high part of the Yelp, and there does need to be a shoulder. There needs to be a point where that breaks over. You know, there's some people that when they call, they may have the cadence right, but it, may, it just sounds like these flat chopstick, just dot, 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 dot. It's not realistic. I don't care if it's high pitch, low pitch. There's some birds that like that high frequency. There's some people, there are some birds that like lower, you know, raspier. That, that's all the, the kind of nuance to the birds you're working, or if you want to sound like multiple birds. But every bird is going to have the same fundamental building blocks of that vocalization. And if you can get that, or make sure that's in there, you're going to go a long way. And I think you're right. I think in some cases, especially especially if we're talking about public land, where those birds are hearing many, many different callers, but many of those callers are not authentic sounding. doesn't have to be dead on, you know, Billy Yardis national champion perfect, but it's not authentic sounding then those birds are going to become very educated very quickly, and they're just going to pitch out and go the other way. And so I agree with you that maybe during the bulk of the season, in some cases, the reason why people do better with just a couple trees, soft tree yelps, and then a couple clucks and a couple purrs is because those sounds are sounds that they can make that actually sound authentic that don't tip the turkeys off and the turkeys want to fly down and come. And and most of the time when I hear people saying that that's how they call, a lot of times those birds are coming in cautiously. 
and they're just coming in slowly, and, and they're just looking, maybe strutting, looking, strutting, and they have to work them slow and call them in, in cautiously and slow. Now, in the if we're talking about later in the season, well, it may not even be the fact that you're um, that, that other people in the area haven't been calling authentically. In some cases, I will still do the exact same thing, where maybe all I'm going to use is clucks and purrs to get a bird to come in, simply because whether it's the time of day or whether it's just the the, the time of season where the hens just are not active the hens are off on their own they don't care about you know breeding they don't, they're not they don't care about other hens they don't care about being together okay in those situations maybe aggressive what most people quote unquote would consider aggressive style calling is not what that bird is going to be accustomed to hearing at the time so maybe it's going to set him off a little bit where a cluck and purr and subtle calling is going to be a little bit more effective that, by all means, that happens. But I think you're right. I think a lot of people sell themselves short on the experiences that they may be able to experience out in the field simply because they just haven't quite gotten to the point where they've, they've been able to master some of the fundamentals of the calling that they're doing to where they just don't sound quite authentic enough. I've got guys that come to, you know, again, you know, if you're in Mississippi and you're dealing with heavily pressured birds or you're dealing with, you know, doesn't matter. Yes, understand there's going to be different tactics for different birds, and I tell people this all the time, but, you know, they'll come out to Kansas uh, and hunt Rios with me, and they want to call. I'll get, I usually give them about the first 10, 15 minutes, and they're like, all right. <laughs> let's, let, let, let me call for a little bit. Let me show you what I do, and then you can take And I'll start calling, and they look at me like I am from Mars. And, I, you know, what are you doing? I'm like, just sit back, enjoy the ride, get your gun on your shoulder, and get ready. And every <laughs> time the first bird comes in and they get, you know, the first hunt under their belt, they go, goodness gracious, I've never seen that i've never witnessed that i've never really experienced that well i think some people do in fact sell themselves short and they don't ever try to call a little bit more frequently or a little bit more aggressively um, because they've been told that it doesn't work and i think they're missing out on on some a, a success and just awesome awesome encounters you know yeah, I kind of had a situation this year on the Gould hunt where, and it typically happens with guys that are from the southeast or you know, New York, Pennsylvania, kind of in that country where they call like they say they want to do the calling, and I'm like, okay, and <laughs> they call like twice, and then they sit there for an hour. Yeah, yeah, and I'm just like thinking in my mind, okay, um, this isn't going to work. Like yep, this is you know, maybe 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 if a bird just happens to walk in, it might happen. But you know, I, you yep. know, you have to broadcast. You know, and I, I believe that you can overcall at times. Um, but it is interesting to see the different strategies for sure. Uh, I, I want to switch gears here for a second. A couple things I've been watching on your Instagram uh, and on your Facebook, all the stuff you've been doing with getting your properties ready. But before we get into that, 
there is a picture on your Instagram. And for those listeners out there, uh, Row Hunting Resources, that's R-O-E, so it's at Row Hunting Resources. Um, Chris, you're holding a beard that looks just like a freaking paintbrush. <laughs> What's the st- status with that? Dude, he was a two-year-old. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not. That's, the, that's one of the birds I was talking about. Okay, so again, remember I told you that there, there's that group of five birds traveling together, all right? So all preseason, I'm watching these birds. And these birds are actually using a field that, the, that a, a, an outfitter has. We have all the river bottom. We have all of the roost areas. We have all of, and this is a, a longer discussion for another day, but regardless, we do all the food plots. We do all the intensive management, the habitat improvements. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm watching the, the, you know, how many birds we have and what the population. And I'm, I'm regulating how many hunters we're taking out there and how many birds we're going to take. We're, I'm doing all that on my side of the fence. Meanwhile, on the other side of the fence, an outfitter has leased the ground, and his over the year, past couple of years, he's kind of realized that what he's got on that fence line, and so he's just slowly, slowly, slowly worked his way to this point this year. He put his ground line literally as physically close to the, uh, the roost site as possible and just dumped a corn pile in the field in front of, uh, of the ground line and so he could just try to kill every bird that he could get over that fence line. Well, I'm watching these birds. Well, they ended up putting uh, some oats in this field, and so these birds finally started using this field. And I'm thinking, I'm going to have great. You know, this guy, they're just going to slaughter them. So I, I changed how we, you know, manage the property and how we hunt the property, and et cetera. And so I went in there one day, and I'm like, you know what, I'd really like to try to see if we can't get one of these birds on the ground because they're just giants. They're, like you said, they're just, you, you can from a distance in a spotting scope or a binoculars, you look at them, you just like, sit there and go, oh my gosh, These, they're just huge beards, just giant body birds. I'm thinking they've got to be four-year-old birds or better, you know. So I get set up, I get in, you know, I was getting in there, I go to get set up, these birds are already in the field, so all I can do is sneak into one of my ground blinds. That's in there. I didn't even have any chairs in the ground blind. Luckily, I've got most of it on camera. So I get in there and I sit. Now, again, these are five big birds locked down with two. Well, I think there were three hens in the field that day, but they're just locked down with two hens typically. They weren't. They didn't respond to anything. They weren't. They're not coming. They're just not doing anything. Well, I end up calling in a Jake. Okay, so I set out a a small decoy spread just because where I was set up, when the wind starts blowing, this particular spot is a very well-known, or for me, it's a well-known, well-used, that's better, but well-used uh, loafing area that birds will move into this little shady spot where it's protected out of the wind, and midday it can work really good, and that's why I went there. Well, the wind died, the weather was beautiful, these things aren't going to leave this field all day. But I had a couple decoys out, just to, just my uh, an upright hen and the Jake decoy, and so I'm sitting there, and these birds are out in the field. I'm like, well, I'm just going to have to wait until, you know, it starts getting hot, and then they want to move into the shade, and, and maybe I'll have a chance. Well, a jake gobbled in the river bottom in front of me. Didn't know it was a jake, but a, a bird gobbled. So I start calling. Sure enough, I call him in. It's a jake. I'm like, all right, no run. Well, that jake comes into the decoy spread and starts to try to climb onto the hen decoy. 
And as soon as he starts trying to breed the hen decoy, and he's spinning around trying to figure out how, she, I thought I'm like, I even looked right in the camera. I was like, oh, this could happen. I said, those birds out in that field cut, see this activity in front of my blind, and they see a Jake or another Tom trying to breed a hen. This might be over, dude. I, I literally. I think it was 10, 15 minutes after. It may have been longer. The, the jacket was in front of my blind working that decoy over for a long time. And literally, I'm sitting there waiting, 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 and all of a sudden the jake kind of, I see him stop. He slowly just moves away from the hen. His head goes up a little bit. I'm like, oh, something's changing. And right about that time, Bro, I mean, they gobble, and they are like three feet from the back of the blind. I'm in the, I'm in the blind scrambling now trying to, you know, I mean, these things got under the wire. I mean, they w about tripped over the guy wire of the, you know, the, the anchor of the blind. All of those birds come walking in there, but now they're, so they're full strut, and they're walking, and they're kind of walking, and now it's just chaos. you got five birds chasing each other, chasing Jake. Some of them are over at the decoys. Some of them are running around. And meanwhile, I'm trying to get the camera on them. They're only 15 yards at this point. And so I've got a full choke and everything. I'm like, oh, goodness gracious. So I did. There was a couple birds in there that had the biggest, biggest beard. And they had the prettiest, you know, Rio Grande coloration. And they had a good full fan. There was one in there that had a, a couple busted feathers in the tail fan. You, you. I remember this from last year. You know, how many hunters do you get that, that they'll pass on a bird because it didn't have a perfect tail fan? Um, so I knew these these two. one of these two birds was, was going to be the ones I wanted to take it. So as soon as that one had cleared, I just crushed him. Not once, not once stopping to take a look at his spurs. Now, the grass is, at that point is probably a little too tall. I don't even know if I would have seen his, his spurs, but I didn't even think about it because they were so big. I'm like, oh, yeah, these are, these are older birds. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to crush him. I'm going to run up there, and he's going to have inch and a quarter hooks. I walk up there, and he's got maybe, maybe three-quarter inch spurs. <laughs> wow, from the beard. Holy smokes, that thing. Yeah. I mean, that just goes to show you, though, I mean, spurs, truly the best indication of age, I think. Um, and, and yes, they are, but you and I both know, I mean, even that can be you know, kind of inconsistent. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. it's, a, it's an unfortunate reality. Some birds just don't. We had a, one of our hunters killed, I think, one of the biggest birds. I think it was a 10-and-a-half-inch beard, and this bird had to have been pushing 24 pounds 20, or something like that. Just a giant. His spurs look like quarter-inch nubs. They look like Jake's spurs. He just, he just didn't grow any, you know? But, no, he, I, I have no regrets. I mean, that bird was a giant. I mean, big, big, big fan, big old honking beard on him. Um, yeah, it was, it was fun. But that just goes to show you, you know, sometimes, you know, it takes, you know, like that, just that, that Jake coming in there working that hen is what made that happen. But, you know, a, a bird in good habitat can, you know, they can grow four and a half, five inches of beard a year. So, I mean, heck, you can get a two-year-old bird that's got a 10-inch beard if, it, if everything's going right. So, I, I don't know if I've asked you this question before, but it was something else that I learned this year. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know what I was thinking before, but, and maybe you can fill me in. Maybe you know, maybe you don't. But 
when a bird, when a gobbler loses their primary um, feathers out of their tail fan, so when a bird comes in, he's full strut and like he's missing three feathers in a row, you know, and there's a big gap in his tail fan or whatever, if he's missing one feather, um, I didn't realize that they'll just grow those back in. I, and that's kind of dumb on my part, but um, I had several guys say, no, I mean, they'll just grow those feathers back. Do you know, Chris, like what time of year that if they lose those primary feathers that they will regrow those feathers? Yeah, they'll, they'll molt twice a year. Um, now, and there's a difference here. There's, there's the molt that they do. They, they actually replace every single feather on their body twice a year. So they'll, they'll go into, you know, they'll molt in the summer, and then they'll molt, um, and they'll have a new set of, uh, they'll molt in the kind of the fall, winter when they, they'll, so they'll get a new set of feathers all nice and shiny, ready to go for spring. That's why uh, Jake feathers in their tail fan look the way they do. Those center feathers that are longer than the other ones are their new adult feathers. They just haven't molted out of the, the spring molt. They haven't molted out of those baby feathers. And as summer goes on, they'll just keep growing. They'll just they'll grow those other feathers. But if the, the tail feather, if a feather breaks and the quill is still intact and healthy, no, they will not grow that feather until they molt and they shed it out. However, if a tail feather, if from my understanding, if a feather gets plucked out to where the quill gets removed, that is when it will stimulate a new feather to come in and, and re regrow. That is what I know. I'm not an ornithologist, so maybe I'm wrong on that. But as far as I've known, that's if a quill gets plucked, It'll it'll grow a new one back. If it just gets broken, it'll wait until they molt. Okay, because that leads me to my second question of Billy. Actually, his second bird. Um, you know the second. Uh, I'm going to call them the secondary feathers, and you can correct me on my, you know, terminology. But you know, you've got your primary fan, and then you have on the Goulds those beautiful white secondary feathers that are yeah, you the know, saddle feathers or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know how, like, from the white band on the Goulds, like, the next band down is usually another nice band in its own right? Yes. Well, Billy shot a bird, and we didn't realize it. I mean, he strutted, but, you know, you're kind of... He basically had six or eight of those feathers completely gone. So when you actually look at his photo, that secondary band, it, and I'm curious what would make that you know, those six or eight feathers just completely gone. Uh, Curious your number, thoughts. Uh, actually, a number of things. I mean, if that bird had been fighting and another bird jumped up and kicked at him and, and he kind of flinched and turned, I mean, you know as well as I do, sometimes, you know, you shoot a bird and he starts flopping. Well, some of those feathers just go everywhere. Uh, he, 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 he easily could have been scrapping with another bird. Another bird jumped up, kicked at him. He flinched, and when that bird's feet came down and raked across his back, it just could have plucked, just pulled some of those feathers out. Um, the, you know, who knows? Uh, the other thing, that would be my guess of why, if they truly were completely missing, that, uh, that would be my guess of why they were missing. 
Um, I've seen, you know, where maybe a coyote or something has, has gone after him and, and launched at him and tried to grab, yeah, grab a mouthful and all of a sudden, you know, he's got half a fan, you know. Um, the other thing too, though, and it'd be very interesting to see the picture. And I, and I noticed this, well, I, over the years I've noticed, it, but I, I always pay attention to this when I am trying to prep someone's tail fan for them or show them how to prep their tail fan. Those saddle feathers are in there fairly loose. The, the, the skin that they are plugged into, if you will, is very loose. And so sometimes those feathers can get off-center. They can get tucked off to the left or tucked off to the right and actually just kind of buried and hidden in under other saddle feathers. And it's not until you kind of lift all those saddle feathers up kind of give it a shake and let things kind of settle back that, that oh, wait a minute, nope, that feather, oh, there it is, okay, it just, it kind of got just messed up in the fray and just kind of got tucked, you know, under, you know, some of the other saddle feathers or just got tucked off to the side of the other fe saddle feathers. Sometimes just with the bird flopping around on the ground, it can lose feathers or they get pushed up underneath some of those other deeper, bigger feathers, and you just kind of got to go search for them. But my my guess is either it lost him when it was if if the bird did not flop uh, when he killed it. My guess is he probably lost him in a fight somewhere. Yeah, good stuff. I want to take just a second here, Chris, and thank the sponsors of this podcast. I want to thank Go Hunt Insider. They have been the title sponsor of this podcast. Uh, since I started it over three years ago, I want to thank Go Hunt Insider. I want to encourage you guys, uh, if you're not a Go Hunt Insider member, you can use the J. Scott promo code and you're going to get a $50 Go Hunt Gear Shop gift card immediately credited to your account. You can immediately buy something. Uh, if you haven't heard about the Go Hunt Insider, in my opinion, they are the best Western hunting resource and tool to use when applying for all these Western states. Uh, make sure to check them out. Make sure to use the J. Scott promo code. I want to thank them for their sponsorship. Also, Kuyu.com, K-U-I-U.com. Kuyu makes, in my opinion, the best ultralight hunting gear available on the market today. And the Outdoorsman's. Uh, outdoorsmans.com. If you use the J. Scott promo code at outdoorsmans.com, you're going to get a 10% discount. Uh, if you call them 1-800-291-8065, you're going to get a 10% discount if you use the J. Scott promo code as well. Um, guys, we've got some other sponsorship things coming up that I'm going to be announcing over over this next month, some exciting stuff going on here. I want to thank each and every one of you for your support of this podcast. And like always, if you have any questions of me, uh, you can email me at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. I appreciate you guys following along on my Instagram account. That's at jscottoutdoors. Chris, you have been doing some great posts. Uh, on your Instagram and on your Facebook, and I'm excited to see um, kind of the interaction uh, as, that you're having while you're prepping uh, some of your different properties. Talk a little bit about what's going on within row hunting resources 
and and what you do, you know, your day job and what you've been doing over the last couple of weeks. And I encourage the listeners to go check it out. Yeah, so we've talked about, you know, everybody probably by this point knows all my stuff that I do with elk, and I, I, still that's continuing and going on. But, you know, I again, I'm a wildlife biologist, and, and I help private landowners manage their land for wildlife. And so the stuff that I do in Kansas, the reason why I'm in Kansas, is to help a couple landowners uh, with wildlife management stuff and the hunting stuff that's going on in their property. Well, um, some people... And, and this is to your point of what I've been starting to put on social media is a little bit more details of what it is I'm actually doing out here. It's just not me dinking around. It's, I, 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 there's a kind of a, a purpose of what I'm doing. And it's kind of a longer discussion, and people can go to, you know, like I said, it's ROE, Row Hunting Resources on social media, and you can dive into some of this stuff, especially on uh, the, the Roll Hunting Resources Facebook page. All the videos are, are there, and you can kind of go back through and watch. But um, some people, you know, we're in an area in, in Kansas where we have agriculture, but there are some things going on with agriculture these days that are changing. Uh, it, it's not the same that was going on, say, 10 years ago. And so there's a lot of people that say, oh, I've hunted you know, Kansas for X number of years and blah, 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 blah. We always shoot big deer and it's great deer, but yeah, that's fine. But there's a lot of people, especially even locals, that can are start to sit there and go, well, wait a minute, I'm just not, I'm not seeing the, the numbers that we saw before. I'm, I'm just not seeing the quality that we kind of saw 10 years ago. I, you know, I just don't see the number of turkeys. What's going on? Well, if you start looking at the landscape, uh, there's a couple of things that are, in fact, changing. And those changes, although they might be subtle and you don't really notice it, those changes are having impact on, at least in my area, the, the population of animals we're dealing with. So, for instance, we've got a different um, crop rotation, you know, commodity prices, you know, whether you're talking wheat, corn, soybean, um, those prices these days are, are completely different than what they were five years ago, seven years ago, ten years ago. And so now, to the point, you know, it's almost impossible to even pencil in a, a profit margin on growing wheat. So a lot of people don't want to, a lot of farmers are going, Gee, I, I'm not going to grow wheat because there's no money in it. However, you've heard me talk about all the time, winter wheat is king. When we're talking about early season in the fall or nice weather during the winter, the deer are going to pile in on the winter wheat. And in the spring, if you've got winter wheat, you've got turkeys. Well, it's not just because it's tasty stuff. It's because it actually has a very, very high nutrient content to it. And it, from a physiological standpoint, those, those birds and the, and the deer actually need that food they, they need that forage especially in our area where we don't have a lot of uh, native vegetation I'm literally like I said I'm here in eastern Kansas I just finished this morning I just finished looking at a, a gentleman's property he came out did an evaluation for him you were on the east his property is on the east side of the Flint Hills of Kansas anybody knows uh, about the Flint Hill it's just an absolute gorgeous chunk of, of, re, of just region of Kansas, well, there's just gigantic white oaks and red oaks and pin, I mean, oh, just there's so much just food, native vegetation and food for the deer. Well, in my area, that ain't it. I mean, most of the deer and turkeys are almost 
dependent upon agriculture throughout the year. So winter wheat is extremely important as far as a, a high-quality forage component on the landscape. Well, if all of a sudden 90% of the farmers are no longer growing winter wheat, well, you just pulled a huge chunk of food off the table. And then people that only come to Kansas in the you know in October, November, December, well, they see all the corn fields and they see all the corn in the fields and they see all the deer that are out in the corn fields and the turkeys that are out in the corn fields. And they're like, oh, well, this is great, dude. You know, we've got all these deer out in the corn fields and these big corn field, you know, corn fed bucks, blah blah blah. Yeah, that's fine. But if you really look at things from a, a standpoint of a year round uh, rotation. Corn, you plant corn, let's just say in a great year you plant corn starting about April 19th or 20th and you can get corn in the ground. Well, when corn comes out of the ground, the field that the corn is getting planted into can't have anything in it. So they've already, just from a competition standpoint, from a, a crop management standpoint, they're going to use either herbicide, they're going to till it, they're going to disc it, whatever. They're going to prep that field which means they essentially wipe the slate clean. There's no food on it. So in April, there's no food, at least April, there's really no food on that field. And then they plant the crop in the end of April, beginning middle of May maybe, and then the corn starts coming up. Well, if you look at the corn plant, the corn plant doesn't have a lot of high, it's not very nutrient beneficial for deer, and it's almost completely, almost 100% worthless for turkeys. So you've got May, June, July, August, September, where that corn plant really isn't providing any food whatsoever, not really high-quality food. Once the plant produces an ear, okay, then they, okay, you got some food there. But, but even then, you look at some in some cases, our farmers are finding that they actually have better uh, marketability. There's better money in harvesting what's called wet corn. So the, the, it's a high-moisture corn. Well, if you have a high-moisture corn, meaning the ear of corn still has a lot of moisture in it, well, that ear of corn isn't going to shed, and the, the ears of corn aren't going to just fall on the ground. And when the corn falls over, the, the kernels of corn aren't going to pop out of the cob. So when they harvest, quote-unquote, wet corn, there's almost nothing left in the field. And so even though you planted corn, you think, okay, well, October, November, December, it's going to be out. No, no. It, you might as well have taken a shot back out in the field and sucked up every kernel because it's just dirt and stock. So now you say, okay, well, that field didn't grow anything of high-quality food for the deer throughout the year. Well, now it's got nothing in the field for them in the fall and winter. Okay, well, there's corn. Well, now we've got a lot of people planting corn because at least there's money in corn. And corn only utilizes moisture for a short window of time. So when we're in these drought years, these dry years, corn actually is a better crop to grow. So now all of a sudden you've got these just thousands of acres of corn. Put on top of that incentives by uh, farm services to, you know, if you want to get crop insurance, they will give you a better rate if you plant more acres in one crop. So we've got kind of this perfect storm 
of situations where because of just farmers trying to, I mean, and I'm telling you that the profit margin on farming is just razor thin. People don't realize um, the cost that it goes to. They're, they're literally looking on a per acre basis on if they can make money off of, you know, they, they say they put a couple tens of thousands of dollars in on fertilizer and seed and herbicide and everything else, and they raise that crop. Let's just say it's a decent crop. They're hoping the commodity prices, when they go to sell it, are enough to where they make a couple dollars on the back end per acre to where they're going, okay, I come out ahead. But I'm telling you that people don't realize just how razor thin some of the agricultural markets are to where farmers are trying to just just survive and, and pay bills and, and do the best they can. And so they have to change the way they do their, their agriculture on the landscape, which is, I mean, people are still very responsible. There's very responsible herbicide management, very responsible um, fertilizer management, very responsible crop rotations, but it's just the crop rotations have changed a little bit. You, you, granted, we've got soybeans. Soybean is a is that's that's your ticket. Soybean is a perfect. It's like a superfood for deer, but soybean requires a lot of moisture. And so, if you're in a dry year, maybe you're not going to plant a lot of soybean. So, I say all of that because if folks just simply come out and hunt a week out of the year, you don't really get to see everything else that went into actually producing the whitetail that you want to go after or the turkey that you want to chase in the field. So because of all those changes, we're starting to see, you know, does that they're not having twins or triplets. They're having one fawn. Uh, deer that are going through the summer, literally skin and bones. You can see the ribs. You can see their the shoulder blades. You can see their hip bones. and their, I mean, they're, they, just, they, they look emaciated because they just don't have quality food. And so... And that triggers this whole other, I'm going to talk about this here coming up on my uh, social media stuff, is the epigenetic effects, not just genetic, epigenetic effects, where the environment, their, their nutritive state and, and how they were born and the mother, the condition of their mother when they were born, all these things can, can flip a switch on or off or whether or not that animal is actually going to manifest the genetic potential it even has. So... All these things considered, we, I sit there and I look at where I manage and I say, okay, how do I allow the landowner to do what they need to do? They have to pay their bills. They've got, they have bills. They have to pay them. They have to make a living just like I do, just like you, you know, listeners do. I want to make sure that they can pay their bills, but how can I then go and either uh, incentivize them to change maybe a field edge here or a field edge there, and maybe we just leave some crop or maybe we change and put a food plot in, or maybe we take that piece of pasture that uh, is not really productive, and that's probably what you've seen recently. I went in and I was talking about converting an actual active piece of cattle pasture into a food plot, but I'm not removing that pasture from active cattle grazing. That the, the area of this cattle pasture turned into nothing but cheatgrass and hemp. So from a, a ranching standpoint, from a cattle production standpoint, that chunk of real estate was doing nothing for the, for the, the rancher. 
but we can go in, I can go in, and I can convert that to, say, a winter wheat field. The cattle are in that pasture prior to me getting ready to plant the winter wheat. The winter wheat goes in. I can provide a good benefit for deer and turkeys from fall into the winter and then into the spring. However, about the time the winter wheat starts to mature, that's when he wants to put his cattle in there. Well, now I can turn, we can turn the cattle in, and now rather than just an area of just dead cheatgrass and hemp, now he'll actually have something that has forage quality for him. So I can provide a win-win for that landowner. We've got a win on his cattle grazing in the range quality, and I've got a win from the wildlife side. So that's kind of what I'm doing on our landscape, and I'm always trying to see, can I start to offset our agriculture, our crop rotation, and make sure that I can provide a high-quality, high-nutrient uh, forage 365 days a year get in in relation to what the crop rotation is. And that that is what I'm showcasing now. That is what I'm doing. So like I said, I just went and, and uh, reviewed this gentleman's property and gave him some pointers. Uh, literally, I, I have a – here in 30 minutes, I've, I'm going to be doing a uh, turkey seminar – excuse me, an elk hunting seminar for, for the Elk Foundation folks. And then tomorrow – I turn right around. I'm headed to another property, and I'll be posting some stuff on there. I'm helping another gentleman uh, reclaim, or not re well, reclaim an existing food plot that just turned into nothing but weeds because it just wasn't done properly to begin with. And then he's got another property that is completely virgin, has never had agriculture on it, at least not in the, the I mean, decades. So we're going to go in and take a look and see if we can't put some food plots in there and start to provide year-round beneficial forage for his, 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 his deer and turkey. So that all is being showcased on my social media right now. Uh, and then once I get done with those couple projects, that's when I just guide right back into my elk stuff for the later part of the summer. Yeah, and Chris, I might add, uh, later this month, we don't have an exact date uh, scheduled yet, but uh, Chris and I are going to try and answer the listeners, you guys' questions, and most of the questions that we're going to be answering are going to be in, you know, pertaining to elk, elk hunting, elk calling, and what have you. If you guys are listening to this episode right now and your, your mind is already, like most of us, already starting to think about elk and um, you've got strategy questions, you've got tactics questions, you've got you know, behavior questions, whatever it may be in regards to elk, uh, you're going to have a chance to ask Chris and I, uh, be on a conversation and have some bounce back with Chris and I so if you're interested in uh, having a discussion with Chris and I on this podcast, uh, you can send either one of us, uh, but probably for now, just send me uh, the questions and I'll forward them to Chris. And as this, gets a, as this plan of ours gets a little more formulated, uh, we're going to be probably both talking about it on our Instagram account so you guys will know exactly when this is going to go down. And then we will... I will be turning that podcast around and uh, so that everybody can hear it. And we may have to do a couple of them because I assume we're going to have quite a few questions and yeah. we're going to try and do, do several throughout the summer 
uh, Chris, don't you think uh, some guys are going to get some real value out of uh, not just asking a question and then us answering, but having the option to ask questions and follow-up questions in, in a discussion style uh, that everybody can get some value out of, um, you know, as far as elk hunting. I think it's, it's going to be a great, great thing that people get a lot of value from. Yeah, absolutely. And like we talked about yesterday, it's, you know, even given the fact that I've got the elk module and there's so much information in there, people are constantly uh, asking questions and just clarification and just concepts and that type of stuff. So, yeah, absolutely. If you got questions, let's let's hash through them. And I think well, I think it's going to be a fun uh, a fun type of scenario that we can do. So, no, yeah, like yeah. I said, like I said, if you can run those logistics, I say let's do it. Yeah. So, guys, send uh, send your questions, or if you want to say yes, I'd like to ask some questions. Uh, I'll put you on our list. Uh, you can email me at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com, uh, and uh, we'll do the best we can in getting a lot of those questions answered. And, of course, Chris, uh, Row Hunting Resources, uh, you've been around for a long time and providing a lot of value to people uh, in, in the elk module uh, in, in, in a bunch of the different tutorials within the Row Hunting Resources uh, Chris, for those listeners out there that maybe haven't heard you on this podcast, maybe they're a new listener, um, let's conclude here and talk about uh, what Row Hunting Resources does uh, and the value that you provide to your uh, subscription base and, and just uh, you know, basically be talking to the new, li new listener uh, so that they're aware of it. Sure, sure. So what, you know, what you've heard Jay and I talk about so far, you know, uh, you know, from my day, you know, if you call it my day job, the, the, the work that I do getting my hands dirty is a lot of on-the-ground habitat stuff. And so, yes, I'm, I'm out here working with deer, and I'm literally just here at the uh, end of the month. I'm headed up to look at uh, elk ranch, elk property for elk hunting, and there's some habitat concerns there so I'm looking up that's up in North Dakota up in the Badlands up there so I do a lot of consulting so if people are you know obviously if you've got help if you need help with deer and stuff especially if you're in the Kansas area or whatever yeah give me a call but when it comes to education when it comes to a lot of the elk stuff that I do from a calling a behavior standpoint that I'm very very strong in the behavioral sciences and why behavior matters why their vocalizations matter, what they're saying, why they're saying it, when they're saying it. All of that information uh, I've got under that the rowhuntingresources.com, and you'll see there there's a subscription base. It's the elk module. And, yeah, there's, I've, I was talking to Kelly, my wife, today. I think we've got uh, – it's got to be pushing almost 40 hours. I know it's over 30 hours, but it may be almost 40 hours of, of educational video in that elk module talking about everything that I can think about from you know, vocalizations, behavior, tactics, how to, you know, how I use that stuff. So we, and this is important for anybody who's listening that, that has been a member even in uh, previously, we have updated that website. So now it is 100% mobile friendly. It doesn't matter what device you're using. Uh, you can watch it on your phone, your iPad, tablet, doesn't matter. It's, it's all optimized for mobile use. 
and you've got several different categories and um, uh, really focuses in there. So I start with the basics, the beginning. Uh, we go through the fundamentals. There's 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 the um, basically you know, kind of getting started videos that go through my philosophy, what I'm thinking, why I think it, what some of the underlying, you know, how should you go about going through the, the elk module, what do you need to focus on, what you know, how to how to pick it apart, how to use it as a tool. Then the recognition series, the fundamental foundation of, you know, what it what are cow vocalizations? What are those building blocks of vocalizations that cows do? What do they mean? Why? And it's not me just flapping my gums about it. I, it's heavily, heavily intensive on elk doing whatever it is that I'm talking about. So if I'm going to be talking about a particular behavior or a vocalization, at some point there's going to be an elk standing in front of you on video with good audio, good video, boom, doing it in front of you. So you can see this is them, this is them doing it. And then the next step in that progression then is recognition. Okay, so now that I understand what a lost mew is versus an assembly mew versus a whine versus this type of mew or that type of bull vocalization, we have a chunk in there that is nothing but what I call the gallery. It's just nothing but elk doing what elk are doing. There's no calling involved. There, you know, no person, no human calling involved. There's no interference uh, trying to make the elk do anything. These are just me videoing elk interacting with themselves, each other, their environment, and in some cases, other factors like other traffic or other people around or whatever, but you get to see what those animals are doing, but you can then recognize, okay, Chris talked about this vocalization. Ah, I just heard it there. He talked about this behavior. Ah, there, I get to see it there. So it allows you to kind of watch elk, watch their behavior without any pressure of, of trying to hunt because there's so many times when we're on a hunt, we focus on the success of the hunt rather than soaking in all of the details that are um, unfolding in front of us. Well, the gallery lets you just sit and watch this all unfold so you can have a better understanding of what you're seeing when you go out to the field. And then you go from there to application where you've got the strategies in action. We've got the other hunting videos where you actually sit and watch me we take all that information. Here's the vocalizations we talked about. Here's the behavior we talked about. Okay, come along. I've got the camera. Let's go. Ah, bull bugle over here. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to get set up. This is how I'm going to call. This is why I'm going to call. This is why I'm going to say what I'm going to say. This is the uh, outcome that I expect or the reaction that I get or I expect. Let's see what happens. And then I work that setup and show you how I go about uh, calling in elk and working setups, and then there are a handful of videos in there where it's me actually going out and having a hunt where I end up killing the elk. So there's a lot of different educational tools in that elk module. Again, though, it's all video based, and it's really it's all video based, but it's heavy on elk video. You know, elk themselves on video doing it, just not me uh, flapping my gums about it. So. That's what that great stuff. module is. <laughs> great stuff. How do they find it? How do they find you? Anything that you want to find out about me, just type in Row Hunting Resources. R O E 
hunting resources and it'll come up. So rowhuntingresources.com is the website. Uh, we have a YouTube channel, Row Hunting Resources. There's a pile of uh, YouTube videos, Instagram, Facebook. I am on Twitter, but I just uh, I Twitter's kind of a, I don't do a lot of active Twitter. It's just kind of a secondary thing. But Instagram, I'm on a lot, and Facebook, I'm on a lot. YouTube, and then RowHuntingResources.com. So. Awesome, buddy. Well, I know you've got that uh, seminar to do here in a few minutes. I appreciate you taking some time with us here. Glad you had a great uh, turkey season. Um, glad you're getting a little bit of rain here and there. I saw you got two inches the other day, and that, that was a welcome surprise. So oh, yeah. uh, hopefully all, all across the West here we need uh, moisture. Hopefully we get, uh, get some moisture this summer and uh, everybody's happy. Uh, always great having you on the podcast. I look forward to this summer and doing some of this question and answer stuff with the listeners uh, and being able to interact with with our listeners here. Um, and Absolutely. hopefully they'll find a lot of value in that. And so that'll be fun. And, uh, yeah, drive safe tonight on your way back home and hope you have a great seminar. And those, I know those people are going to get some um, good stuff tonight. Yeah, no, it should, it should be really fun, and I think the focus of tonight is going to be what we just talked about, the fact that the weather conditions across this west, um, you know, you look at Arizona and southwest Colorado, just how bad it is. got fires burning in, in New Mexico right now, but then again, you know, we, I, you and I were talking about the fact that, you know, at least where you are in Colorado, there's at least a little bit of snow on the peaks. Um, there, there's going to be such a wide array of environmental conditions, you know, habitat quality conditions, whether it's water, whether it's vegetation. Um, and what I'm going to be talking about tonight is going to be kind of diving into further detail on that series I have in the ELK module. If you go into the ELK module under uh, the behavior stuff, the, you'll find it's called rethinking the rut. And I talk about all the factors that actually affect elk rut timing, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, it's, it's, a, it's a late rut, and everybody always just says, well, it's just a late rut, it's a late rut. If they don't see the behavior or the activity that they expect, everybody just says, oh, they defer to us, a late rut. Well, I talk in that series that there's really only one thing that's going to make a, a, a rut end up happening late, but there's actually a number of things that can actually pull a cow to cycle in early. Well, those factors are largely environmental factors and so what we're going to talk about tonight is we're going to we're going to dovetail off of that discussion that rethinking the rut discussion and actually put it on the ground and say okay if you're heading to northern Colorado and, and you've got this type of situation well understand that south central or southwest Colorado is probably going to be completely different Arizona is going to be a real interesting one this year and just you know for people that are getting ready to go out and scout um, maybe they're, they're, you know, we're going to find out who drew tags here in Colorado come very shortly. But for people that are getting ready to start scouting um, this year, this discussion, I hope, I hope will help them kind of um, focus their efforts on what to actually scout and look for. Just don't walk around the mountain, you know, okay, I can camp here. Well, okay, but what are, what are you noticing and what, you notice now, how do I interpret that of what it might do later on? Do I want to hunt early in the season? Do I want to hunt later in the season? Do I want to kind of 
you know, spread my season out a little bit. Um, but that's the other thing. I guess I, that's the other thing, too, about the elk module, Jay, and you know this, is I'm going to record this um, seminar tonight, and then that will automatically get thrown into the elk module here coming up here in a, in, in a week or two. So it's, yeah, the elk module is kind of like an online library. It just, it, as soon as you get a subscription, it opens the gate, and I just constantly keep adding, you know, kind of books to the shelf, so to speak. And anything that I do, I record it, I put it on there, and that way people will have it. So if people are listening to this and they're going, dang it, you know, I wish I could have been to the seminar, well, sign up to the Elk module and it will be on there here shortly. Right on, buddy. Um, God bless you. I'll catch you later, okay? All right, brother. Be safe. We'll talk soon.